Escape your everyday with out-of-this-world action. From the gritty apocalypse of the Walking Dead universe to the cyberpunk realm of The Watch and the criminal underbelly of Gangs of London, AMC Plus is more than entertaining. It's epic. Feel all the chills and thrills with Shudder's halfway to Halloween month. Experience Shudder's biggest month of horror featuring a new season of Creepshow and new movie premieres every week. All available ad-free and on demand. Start your free trial today at amcplus.com. The Big Late presents... Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Blethered, and my guest is Scottish singer-songwriter Graham Lyle. Graham grew up in Largs and moved to London in the 1960s, where he worked as a songwriter for Apple Music, the legendary music label owned by the Beatles. He had his own illustrious music career as part of Gallagher and Lyle before he really turned his attentions to songwriting again. He wrote music for Tina Turner, Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder, Rod Stewart, Ray Charles, and so many more global superstars. Graham talks about having three number one hits at the same time in multiple countries, winning Grammy Awards and being inducted into the Grammys Hall of Fame, songwriting with Paul McCartney, and about world-famous DJ Kygo, covering What's Love Got To Do With It, a song he wrote for Tina Turner. As always, I hope you enjoy it, and if you do, feel free to share it on social media. It helps. Cheers. Graham Lyle, you're a Grammy award-winning Ivor Novello award-winning musician who's written world-famous songs for Tina Turner, Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder, Ray Charles, Diana Ross, Etta James, Tom Jones, Rod Stewart, Holly Oates, Kenny Rogers, Wet Wet Wet, Joe Cocker, Paul Young, and so many more. I'm already out of breath naming all of those. <laughs> We've got an appearance on Blethered with Sean McDonald. Now is that the highlight? Hey! <laughs> I've hit the top spot. You've hit it. You've, you finally made it after all that. <laughs> you must be delighted. Uh-huh. Well... It's an incredible life story with, with a lot of um, interesting points, but starting off in, in Bells Hill, that's where you were born, isn't Bells it? Bells Hill, yep. yep. Uh, born in Bells Hill, but I didn't, I think my parents took me down to Largs. I think I would be about four, four or five, I guess, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and it was tough. I mean, looking back at it, my parents are a really rough time. Money was bad, and my father was not a well man. He had TB, mm-hmm. and uh, eventually cancer took him. But he was in and out of hospital when I was a kid, and my mother had to run the show. Really, you know, and she she had to make ends meet. Um, eventually, she got involved in a shop in Largs, which sold cashmere. Good quality clothing and made a real good go of it, you know. Uh, my father came out of hospital. 
He was in and out a lot. I remember that. I remember going to visit him and uh, just being able to see him through the window at the hospital down in Irvine. Uh, and uh, he, uh, he and my mother made a good go of the shop and it became pretty successful. But I think my father, really, his heart wasn't in it. He was originally an artist. He, he, he painted and he drew and he wanted to be a full-time artist, if that was at all possible. But basically, he'd, he couldn't make any money at it, <laughs> mm. which isn't unusual. Uh, and so he had to take a job designing uh, tanks during the war up in Glasgow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, he was a draftsman. And um, unfortunately, he he was a heavy, heavy smoker. I, I, I mean, I, I haven't ever met anyone who smoked as constantly as he did. And it was crazy because he had TB and, you know. Um, so he died when I was 19. And by that time, I'd met up with Pat. And, uh, and I was determined to do music, even though my parents wanted me to continue in the Dross Academy and, mm-hmm. you know, hires and all that stuff. Um, which I did do until I was about 18, 19. And then I, they said, well, if you still want to do music after doing your hires, uh, we will support you. And they did. They helped. Uh, I ended up going down to London. I played in local bands off and on over the years, you know, from, I don't know, 15, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, I realized that we weren't going to get anywhere unless we went to London. That these days there was no studios in Glasgow or not, not anything to speak of. So it was a case of going down to London and trying to, trying to get a start there, you know. Do you think because there was no studios, there was nothing up here, it might have seemed like a far off distant daydream? Do you think seeing your dad not being able to pursue what he wanted to do with his life, did that encourage you to go after what you wanted to do most, even if there didn't seem to be money in it? I think I think he saw that I had potential mm-hmm. because um, before he died, I, I had signed a, uh, a songwriting contract, you know, at the age of, I don't know, I'd be 17 or something. Right, okay. <laughs> you know. Very young. And, and very young. And... Uh, uh, and a record came out, I think it was by the McKinley Sisters or something. I, I can't quite remember the name. But, um, you know, it was, it, was, it was a show that to my father that, you know, I might make a go of it. And I think mm-hmm. he felt, well, I didn't get the chance, so I want to give my son a chance, you know. And I'm, I'm really grateful to him for... Uh, taking that attitude, you know. Just was, just how important do you think that is then, that if if you've got a creative person or somebody who's in the arts in some way, that they have that backing? Because I suppose not only emotional backing, but you need a bit of financial support to firstly get going. Yeah, I mean, they they helped me buy the guitar, uh, some recording equipment, you know, mm-hmm. and they didn't pressurise me to get a, a proper job, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, 
it was difficult because I try in Largs, you know, I tried to do it from Largs and send the the, the songs down to London, mm-hmm. but that was that was difficult. I mean, yeah, it was a bit of a waste of time, really. Um, Even Bernie Toppin and Elton John struggled to do that, didn't they? Yeah, to begin with, it's yeah, not yeah, easy. Yeah, yeah. So you get down to London. You went in the nineteen sixties. At what point were you poached by Paul McCartney to? to be an in-house songwriter? Well, Benny came down after me, uh, Benny Gallagher, and, uh, you know, he had been in the band with me in in in, in, in Largs. And we had started writing together. So he, he came down, and uh, how we got in touch with Apple is a bit of a blur, actually, because we had a tape, a demonstration tape of just a few songs, ideas, and um, I think it was a friend of a friend who had mm-hmm. connections with Apple said, oh, why don't you send it in? And we sent it in. And rem- remarkably, uh, you know, Paul McCartney took an interest in it and uh, and said, we want to sign these guys. Uh, at that time, Apple was just beginning, um, just starting. And, you know, they had the clothing shop there, Apple Clothes. I don't know. It was all mm-hmm. hippie stuff. And um, Was this Savile Row or Baker Street or somewhere? No, it was It was off Baker Street. That's right. right. Okay. It was, uh, and, uh, yeah, jeez. I, I really don't know how Paul McCartney heard it, but I think it was through a friend, as I say, a friend. But it worked. And... We we were offered the contract. The contract was twenty five pounds a week to each of us, and we had to write songs and deliver them each week. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, it was a case of treating it the songwriting like a like a job. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like a nine to five, and and at that time we were both married and with kids. You had a day job was as well. Really difficult getting the time to do to do both things, to be a father and a provider and 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 songwriter, you know. So I mean you, you had a you had a day job at that time. Were you working in a steel firm? Uh, uh yes, I was working in British Steel Corporation. And Benny was a he was an electrician. Yeah, Benny was an electrician. So what yeah. fascinates me about that then is your feet are must be firmly on the ground because you know you're still working hard to provide. You know, it's nothing's a guarantee. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, we had uh one child at the time, and uh, Aaron, and uh, yeah, it was a case of making enough money to survive. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you're still making enough money to survive. Feet are on the ground, but this is what I love. So your first day you walk in and you're introduced to Ken Casey, who had driven Jack Kerouac across America, which inspired his book. And he wrote the novel, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's That's Nest. That's right. And he's resident writer, so... He was there. At that point, are you just walking in thinking, right, where am I? I've come from Bells Hill <laughs> to Largs to London. And I'm here with, you know, royalty in terms of literature and songwriting, and Paul McCartney's there. Um, now, let's talk about this. So, Paul had just, for a woman called Mary Hopkin, he had written a song called Those Were The Days, and he asked all the writers to come up with our next single. That's right. And he chose yours, the song Sparrow. Yeah, uh, and you then performed in that track as well with Paul McCartney. Were you a session musician for that? Uh, let me think. On Sparrow, 
Yeah, I think I played guitar on that one. I can't remember. Uh, I certainly played on a, on a, some of the other tracks that we did. Uh, Fields of Santa Chen, Heritage, I think I played on that too. But um, Sparrow, yeah. It, actually, Sparrow was written largely about my life in Lars as a kid. Right. You know, it's funny that. And the tra- and the movement from that small town to to London, mm-hmm. the centre of everything as it was in the, these days, well, yeah. it still is, I guess. Um, and that 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 was what the song was about. And and I've got to say, Paul McCartney was was very very helpful to us in so many ways. He he gave he gave us confidence to do mm-hmm. as well as we could, you know. Uh, for him to say that is a good song, you know, that's, of all, that's, of all people. Yeah, that's quite amazing. How did that feel? I mean, even speaking to people back home or to family, and you're saying I'm working with Paul McCartney because they were very much uh-huh. royalty at that point. Yeah. Um, I mean, how how was that? Did it ever sink in, or did you still feel a wee bit of a not a pretender, but did you feel you had one foot in the door? Yeah. Well, it. I mean, Apple was a was a crazy place at the time I mean every time we went in we'd go in on a Friday at the end of the week with what we had constructed mm-hmm. a little demo and uh, every time you went there there was some some crazy things going on you know Ringo like Starr the, was on his Harry Krishna stage at that point was he not uh, no, no uh, George Harrison, sorry. George was yeah Aye. George was going through that I mean Apple was was starting to dissolve as far as the, the Beatles were concerned. Yeah. And uh, McCartney was doing his best to to run the publishing side of it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and records, Apple records. I mean, people think that Apple was a, was, was, was a company that just fell apart because the Beatles weren't getting on. But Apple was very successful. They're a very successful company. They think any, almost everything they did was successful. Um, I think, uh, you know, sometimes you go in there. I remember one time in the, I think it was the San Francisco Hells Angels arrived with their motor, on their bikes with, uh, with family, you know, with the women in the back and kids, and they just turned up. I think George had asked them over at one time <laughs> and they, t- they took him at his word and uh, they all turned up outside in Savile Row. And I remember uh, up in the up in George's office and the secretary came in and said, you know, the hell's angels are outside. They've just arrived. What shall I do? George said, give them what they want. <laughs> <laughs> Don't cause any trouble. Yeah. <laughs> but, what? you know, we we would be there and we had a room that we could re- rehearse and and write in and, and, and do little recordings. And I remember the day when the Beatles were up on the ceiling doing that last concert that they ever let, did. And they sang Don't Let Me Down. Uh, they, uh, the, um, what's the one? 
Don't let me. Yeah, da, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. That's incredible. And that so you were there when that took place. One. Huh? You were there when that took yeah, place. Yeah, we were downstairs, and they were on the ceiling, uh, on the on the ceiling, on the on upstairs on the on the roof area, recording it, and we we didn't know exactly what was happening. I remember thinking, "Where is everybody?" And they were all up, all the Apple staff That's were incredible. up there as well, and we walked out the front door, only to find. Crowds of people around Savile Row looking up <laughs> on the roof because you could hear the Beatles playing. Aye. And the police were there. And we looked up and realised what was going on, you know. That's amazing. This yeah. feels, like, feels like a bit of a Forrest Gump moment for me that way when he realises that looking back that he was at the most iconic moments in history. Because yeah. that's, I mean, I, I put that on at parties. Yeah. Like on, I'll stick it on YouTube. That's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, what other people were you... Get back. That was the one they were doing uh, on on the top on the roof. What other types of people were you rubbing shoulders with? Because there must have been just the the biggest names. Well, I, I, yeah, there was a lot of a lot of people there. But um, we were we'd only be there maybe once a week, mm -hmm. you know, to deliver what we had written that week. Um, I remember coming sitting in the sitting in the reception area and Alan Klein came in, you know, the, the, the chap who took over the Beatles or, or was going to manage the Beatles right. uh, and get their money sorted out, uh, which Paul McCartney wasn't keen on, but John Lennon was very keen on. And Alan Klein had been uh, managing their own Stones money. and uh, But he turned up... Well, <laughs> it just looked like the mafia had arrived, you know. Mm. I mean, from central casting, you know. Right, they just right. looked <laughs> scary. Uh, Alan Klein and about four other five, four other five guys, um, all in the dark suits and jackets. I think what this looked so out of place in Apple mm. because it was the, the height of hippydom, you know. <laughs> um, and then there was arguments that we could hear sometimes. I don't know if I should be saying this really, but, um, you know, you'd go past. They had a big room, the Beatles themselves, and everything in it was white. <laughs> and there's no. they would just sit around on the floor, you know, talking and mm -hmm. trying to do the, the – tried to run their own company with, uh, with Epstein had gone, you know. And uh, – you could hear with the door shut. You could hear the arguments. It was, it was sad, really terribly sad. But you know, they all went their separate ways and did very well. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what happens. Not everything lasts forever. No. Nope. You you eventually after that point then, but did you and you and Benny started doing a wee bit more things on your own? You were recording in Olympic Studios. You've got people like the Rolling Stones, the Who, Eric Clapton, all in there. Yeah. Well, this that was jumping ahead. Um, what we did was we were contracted to Apple as writers and um, we met up with uh, the band McGuinness Flint, right? Uh, which was Tom McGuinness and Huey Flint. And Huey had been the drummer with John Mayles' band and played with Clapton. They were sort of a hierarchy you know, of players mm -hmm. and Tom McGuinness was man for man and... Uh, they look, They were looking for a bass player, and Benny played bass. And Benny, to his credit, 
said, uh, I'll come and join the band, uh, but I want my mate to come along too. <laughs> and so, I buy that so yeah, I was I was drafted in, and on that first day, we went to Tom McGuinness's house, and he had a, a rehearsal place, uh, right up in the attic, and I remember going up the stairs. And he and Huey play drums. And I thought, wow, this guy is really good. What a drummer, you know. And um, we sat around, just talked. It was a bit awkward at first, obviously, just getting to know each other. And I saw this mandolin hanging up on the wall. I never played a mandolin, but I took it down and started messing around with it. And I figured out some chords. And... I just started playing, and Benny played along with me, and Huey and Tom joined in, and we had it. We had another. There were other people involved, um, but between the four of us, we got this rhythm going, and it was basically when I'm then gone, mm, and the whole the whole song was written there and then, more or less. Uh, we didn't record anything, but I went home that night and it was still in there. And Benny and I wrote the lyric, went back the next day, I'm not sure the next day, whatever, we went back again and uh, played it to the band and it sounded great. It sounded fantastic. In fact, I think, I mean, from my, I think, I think it that one song, and, you know, I was motivated by rock and roll and the excitement of it and the roughness. That was what started me off in music, really. Mm. Although my father played a little guitar and I, I got some from him. But um, that, as I've, I've said it before, but that was the nearest I ever got personally to the spirit of rock and roll mm -hmm. when I'm done going. It was rough and it had that electricity. And it's still got it. You play it on stage and it just jumps. It's amazing. And that got to number one? It went to number two number in Britain. Two. It went number one in Germany, I think. It was right. It was a big success. Mm -hmm. Was it not, am I right in saying that was like 50 years ago, around about this time or this week? Uh, probably. Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure Pat, <laughs> the lovely wife, mentioned that earlier. Okay. Which, which makes me wonder... Would it then be right seventy? Yeah, fifty years right ago. Right in saying that you've had number one records in every decade since the seventies. Yeah, I think I have. Yeah, uh, I yeah. mean, I suppose it's probably a good enough, a good time to talk right now uh -huh. about cat. Actually, I'll, I'll save that. I'll save that because <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll do it chronologically. Obviously, I mean, Gallica and Lyle is a sort of big. A pivotal part of your career as well. Yeah, momentous. Yeah. We I mean, we were only with McGuinness Flint for two albums and three singles, mm -hmm. and they were all successful. Yeah, <laughs> and we decided we needed to do our own thing. I, I I think the music was wasn't quite going the way we wanted it, so um, we thought, well, let's 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 just see what we can do, just Gallagher and Lyle. And that went in a a much more folk orientated angle. 
than what we've been doing with McGuinness Flint. I li- I love playing with McGuinness Flint. I've no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. I, I thought what we created was was great. I mean, they they called us in the press. They called us the British band. The band, the Dylan's band, was mm-hmm. to us they were they were the best. Um, and even to be talked about in that way was was a real credit. Um, but you know, Benny and I decided no, we wanted to do simpler things, more less of a, an arrangement, uh, just simple, basic songs. A lot of it came from ideas uh, based on our experiences here. Uh, a willy was written about my experience of working in a cemetery in Largs for a summer. Yeah, a grave digger. I forgot, <laughs> I forgot to ask you that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Benny wrote about working in the shipyards up mm-hmm. here, you know. So a lot of that, that, that Willie and the Lapdog was a lot about our background. Although I think at the time we didn't quite realise how much of a pull and an influence that Scotland had on us, you know, mm-hmm. musically. Uh, it was a little little bit of a shock, actually. I remember thinking, where's all this stuff coming from, you know, because... I loved rock and roll, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Tamil Motown and, you know, uh, but um, it had to come out, I think, I guess it just had to come out. And slowly we built up Gallaghan Lyle. Every year we would add to it, there'd be a drummer added and a bass player. And in the end, well, the, by the time we got to Breakaway, we had a full band with horn section and everything, you know. Let's... Um... Let's play a wee 15 second clip of Breakaway now just so the listener can hear yeah. how good a song this is. It's not the place you're going to It's just a phase you're going through Oh, I won't stop you, I don't want you to Break away That was Breakaway. That's my favourite tune. I play oh, really? that all the time. One, well, one of that, that you've <laughs> that you've created. I absolutely loved it. What year was that? Out was it seventy seven? Uh, seventy six, I think. Seventy five, seventy six. Yeah. And then I suppose. So did you get to about nineteen eighty, nineteen eighty one, and you're starting to think you want to? Cause well, I mean, that's a long time to be touring and working with Benny. Yeah, well. we, yeah. I mean, we had been. Really, I mean, if you include McGuinness Flint, which was uh, 69, right through to 1980, that was when Benny and I split up in 1980. So you're talking about 11 years of recording and touring and writing. It was, you know, in these days, the record companies more or less demanded that you have you come out with an, an album every every year mm-hmm. uh, and that is hard going especially when you're when you're touring and tours would last you know maybe four or five months out of the year 
and then you've got to sit there and try and write because I couldn't write on the road. Well, very occasionally, but most of it I had to sit down in the quiet and and uh, construct the songs that way. Uh, and then and in a studio and doing an album in a studio can take months, you know. Mm. Uh, it was it was it was tough going especially for Pat and the kids it really was and and Diane Benny's wife and Pat were we were living quite close to each other and uh, oh it was it was hard going I don't know I don't know how they did it actually because we we weren't there a lot of the time well let's talk about that then the family impact because everybody sees you know you see the success the riches the fame the adulation the 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 sold out tours and whatever In October 2001, you were speaking ahead of the Tartan Clef Awards. I think you were the recipient. Was yeah. that for the Jim Diamond? Jim Diamond, yes. Uh, well, you yeah. said just ahead of that, touring in the 70s was a killer. It was very wearing. Mm. You do one, if not two, British tours every year, plus the long American one. Mm-hmm. It was either lose my marriage or take a step back and get things in perspective. That's, that's true. I mean, so I mean, talk me through that because that is difficult for for me or any standard non-celeb civilian to, to get because as I say we just perceive it to be everything's great and everything's rosy yeah. it has that impact because you're away I think well I mean touring is really a, a single man's game mm. been part of a family it, 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 I would say it doesn't work it really doesn't not it's work it's not home. conducive yeah, to a happy marriage yeah yeah but Pat stuck with me through thick and thin and we came very close to breaking up a good few times. Um, I don't think the kids were damaged by it, but I, I know that Pat was the one that kept them all happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, I was in and out all the time. I'd come back from a, a tour in America and uh, I, I wouldn't be able to take my jacket off. I, I couldn't sit in a chair. Mm-hmm. I wanted, what, where are we going next? Because everything was constant, a constant movement. Um, it was bizarre. I saw how bad it can be. It must be one of those ones that when you're gone, they maybe feel your absence, but when you're back, you mess up their routine. Yes. And, and just, there is a certain resentment there. Yeah, Definitely. It's, it's Understandably. A, yeah. Yeah, sure. They think you're having fun all the time, you know, but touring, it can be, but sometimes it's rough. Does it become repetitive? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, not half. I would find it so boring, I think. The more I've thought about it, and I'm like, fuck's sake, I'm singing the same songs every night. (laughs) (laughs) It's the same chat. Well, then, uh, especially in America, a lot of the the places were so similar. The actual actual stages and the theatres must have been built with the same person or something. Yeah. I don't know. Right. But you really would not remember which city you were in. You'd look yeah. down at the stage and see the same the same markings on the stage and right across America. Yeah. It was like, oh. Do you um, feel and then the hotels, you know, become become very, very annoying. I found it really that would drive oh, yeah. that you know that that drives you to throwing things around you know <laughs> that, see that helps me to, that helps me to understand you know when you hear about um performers or musicians that are on like an eighteen month tour 
Mm. It's a long time, and and you hear of them behaving petulantly yeah. or behaving like brats, and yeah. you think the go to. I think the go to human response is always, "Oh well, they get paid a fortune." Right. And I think it's only when you get older you realise that just because you're receiving very a very handsome financial remuneration, mm. it doesn't mean that you're not subject to the exact same or susceptible to the exact same emotions or reactions or frustrations do you see that in, in musicians yeah. and do you re, can you relate to them yeah i mean don't certainly can i, I mean we weren't we were working on a budget all mm. the time you know we weren't making a lot of money we were we were touring to sell records and uh um and keep afloat basically yeah. Uh, it's a very expensive, uh, you know, touring with a full set of musicians and roadies. It's very expensive, mm -hmm. really. Um, and we come out of it sometimes losing money, but the record company more or less insists that you promote your albums. You know, I can understand what why, but the toll on, on certainly on me was pretty awful. I, I I I was more I mean it's in my heart really all I wanted to do was write songs, the best songs I could write, uh, and record them and catch that little spark, that little magic moment that mm -hmm. when it's if you got a good song, it's it has that. It's it's there. It's just a case of catching it in the studio, you know. Um that I'd be I'd I'd have been Far happier, I think, uh, just writing and recording. Touring didn't come to me naturally because I never considered myself a, a singer. I really didn't. I mean, when I'm dead and gone was the first, the first time I had sung seriously on a record. Because it was only because our our, our singer in McGuinness Lane, Dennis Coulson, who had a great voice, wonderful, wonderful voice, an amazing range. Uh, he was like a Joe Cocker, mm -hmm. uh, and he just couldn't he couldn't sing that song when I'm dead and gone. He couldn't. He just couldn't get into it mm -hmm. the way the way it was when yeah, yeah. when we wrote. So the producer Glenn John said. Well, you go and sing it, you know. And I was like, well, I'm not a singer. I mean, I like singing harmonies in the yeah, background, yeah. but and playing. But uh, they said, oh, "No, come on, you do it." So um, that's how I ended up in the front. And then most of Gallagher's stuff, I ended up singing lead, which it's it not, didn't come naturally yeah, at all. You. No. you did. You said in an interview in December 2018, I quite like flying under the radar. Uh -huh. and been able to live my life anonymously. Yeah. I never wanted to be a front man. It was always about songwriting. That's right. So that, I mean, in 1980-ish, in uh -huh. that was kind of your next step, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, when Benny and I broke up, which was painful, but it, it had to happen. Uh, we just ran out of steam, really. Um. Yeah, I decided, what am I going to do now? You know, I had three kids. And uh, and the money was okay, but it was still coming in from the songwriting, but it wasn't a lot. And uh, I said, well, the only thing I, I'm good at is, is songwriting, so I'm going to write for other people. You know, that was the idea. 
I didn't want to record anymore. Yeah, I find that really interesting. I've asked you this before. I don't know if you remember, I asked you last week at lunch uh-huh. about songwriting, that you've written so many songs and they're so expressive mm. and they're so deep and detailed. Now, it's kind of a two-part question, but the first part is, is that just how you most naturally express yourself or do you have to put yourself into that mindset? Because when we'll go through some of the songs you've written, the you know the the I heard it, I heard it on the radio coming down here, mm. so that these songs are, are long lasting. Mm. I mean, how does your brain work in that way? Mm. I wish I knew. <laughs> well, I suppose do you know what it's kind of. It's like saying to I don't know to George Best, how do you do that? And he's like, I don't know, I just do. <laughs> I Genius just comes out and it's in its own way, and you can't always. It's not formulaic. You can't say here's how my no, you can't and and. Uh, you know, although I, it's an interesting question because, you know, I was able somehow to turn my ability into writing songs for other people. Now, up until that point, nearly every song that that Benny and I wrote uh, was reflections of what we'd gone through in our lives, you know. Our, our people we knew, relatives, the songs of Baker Bay was about um, my sister-in-law. Uh, you know, everything had a, a connection to us. And then to write specifically for other people was a jump, a real jump. And I, I, I don't think it, I don't think as many writers can do that really. No, well, not so. when you're used to doing exactly what you've what you're feeling and trying to pull your emotions out there. But even looking back on it, I can still see that in some of these songs that were constructed specifically for other artists still had a bit of me in it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think you can avoid that. You, know? you, you did say. So I'm happy to say. Yeah, I, I mean, you did say before, and I thought this was really fascinating, and I think it it displays a very distinct type of empathy that you can look at someone's personality and the way in which they express themselves and then think right I will put some of my experiences and what I perceive to be their experiences and the way that I think they would express it yeah and I mean that's an unbelievably unique talent well I, I don't know about unique but it's I think it is quite it's quite unusual that someone a writer that's that's come up being a singer songwriter, which is basically re- a reflection of themselves, mm-hmm. uh, can can make that jump. But um, I don't know. I I I I, I try to if I had a, an admiration or a respect for a, an artist, if they say we're looking for this song, and I I had an, a respect for these people. I, that was half the battle. Then I could, if I could imagine what I was capable of doing, connecting in the middle with what they were doing, you know? Mm-hmm. I was writing most of the time for people who had already had success. Uh, if I could make that jump in my head, that connection, then it was so much easier, you know? Then, uh, then I could sit down, yeah, enjoy it, yeah. get my teeth into it, yeah. Did you ever, before we go into, you know, what happened and what then came as a result of that, could you ever foresee the um, level of success that was just basically you're on the cusp of? 
could I ever see how successful it became? No, no, not really, no. I mean, I'd, I do remember one instance in the back of, uh, we had Daniel, my youngest, who was in the back of the car. Uh, I don't know what age he would be, eight or nine or something. And uh, Pat and I were sitting in the front. I was driving him. And, you know, I was telling Pat, you know, I can't believe it. I've got... This week, I've got a number one country in America, country number one with Stay Young, with Don Williams. Don Williams. I've got, I've got, I should have known better, number one in Britain with Jim Diamond. <laughs> and I've got a number one, What's Love Got to Do With It, with Tina Turner, all in the same week. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> my son pipes up from the, the back seat and says, you see, life does begin at 40. <laughs> <laughs> so is that what age you were at that point? I was 40 then. Uh. Because that, that's, I mean, that's unbelievable. Uh, well, I suppose, right, so we'll talk Don Williams. Mm. I had 15 number ones, one of my all-time favourite artists. I get that mm. from my grandpa. Yeah. So you've got the number one with him, but we'll talk about, I suppose, What's Love, because it was a three times Grammy winner. It won Song of the Year, Record of the Year, and Best Female pop vocal performance funny story you had to get in touch with the people in LA to ask for a replacement because your kids broke your original <laughs> Grammy so right. I, I, was, I see that meant a lot to you is, was it just flimsy and plastic well, it's like the, the you know, the, the Ivan Novello award is a solid structure you yeah. know uh -huh. and it's a lovely piece of uh, sculpture actually uh, and as I say solid but the Grammy it's very flimsy. It's I don't know. It's made of plastic or something, you know. Maybe quite but anyway, reflective of American society and know, culture, I suppose. Flimsy yeah, and synthetic. You'd think they'd make it a little bit more <laughs> substantial, but um, anyway, my kids knock. I don't know what happened, but they they shattered it, and um, I thought you so. Were I had to phone them up and say, um, "Can I have a replacement?" Now they put me through. You know, they just didn't believe. I was who I was. I had to give all sorts of guarantees and <laughs> statements and all sorts before before they sent me another replacement. But I've got it. They did it. I'm hoping next time I'm down at your house, I'd, I'd like a photo with it, please, if oh, that's yeah, all right, sure. so I can see I'm a Grammy winner. <laughs> um, now, by the way, for that Grammy, you were up against Stevie Wonder, Prince, yeah. and Lionel Richie. Oh. Three of my favourites. I know. You ended up writing a song that's Stevie... Uh, Stevie Wonder, sorry, uh, appeared on. I'll come to that in a second because yeah. that deserves its own wee bit. I remember the, the when on the Grammys that 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 day and that night in the theatre when we were sitting there, uh, Pat and I and Terry and Jan, his wife, in a row, and no one knew who was going to win. I mean, they really do keep it a secret. Um, and Stevie Wonder was introduced and he got up on the stage and started playing. I just called to say I love you, you know? <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, that's it. He's won, you yeah. know? It was, it, he was knockout. He was wonderful. I, and we could not believe that it was us. I mean, it really, mm -hmm. both Terry and I, it was a real total shock. Um, but there we are. It's amazing. I mean, I mean that, that one song, uh, Changed so many things, you know. It's amazing that you can do that just with one lucky song. Yeah, I mean, I've got I've got so many questions. But first of all, I think 
one thing to explain to people as well is that so you've written the song do you send it to the publisher and Cliff Richard and Box Fizz I find it mental that Box Fizz were ever in for a shout with it um, making your mind up I'd be like do me a favour getting a song as good as that sorry to offend any Box Fizz fans but do you wanted Tina Turner to have it but also I think important to point out is that she was in the wake of her divorce with her abusive ex-husband Ike Turner he's bad mouth and they're all over the place she's not even got a recording deal but you wanted her to have it. Did you just think she's the perfect artist to perform this? Yeah. Well, we had such respect for Tina Turner. I mean, you know, her records are classics. And uh, for her to be attached to any song that Terry and I wrote, you know, in any way was just, oh, that would just be wonderful. Although we knew that she hadn't ever recorded a song of that nature. I mean, we wrote that song with a... Like a reggae with a de- twist. A definite reggae twist to it, yeah. Um, both Terry and I were very influenced by by Bob Marley's music, and we were both into it. Um, and for her to connect, I, I, don't, I don't think we really thought it through. It was just that when when she was suggested, listen... You know, she wants to do it. These other people want to do it. Um, Terry and I said, it's got to be Tina Turner. Mm-hmm. But the powers that be did not want that to happen. All right. No, no, because she didn't have a record company, a record uh, contract at the time. Uh, Bucks Fizz had hit after hit, I imagine. Um, Cliff Richard, obviously successful. Anything he recorded, he would get, you know, he'd get his, follow- his followers to to buy whatever it was um, for a travesty that would have been no if it was Cliff Richard oh. I mean he just couldn't because I just imagine him singing we're all going on a summer holiday and I'm like no man you're not cool enough to, <laughs> say, to sing a tune like that no. at all well he actually did say to Terry and I this is years later um, I don't know why he didn't give me that song I could have made it a big hit you're just well a, it was number one all over the I world I know you're just a clean cut George Formby mate shut up <laughs> Um, the but and Tina Turner did say as well that she owes the resurgence in her career that and the upturn in fortunes to you and you and Terry. I mean that's you well, must have a close relationship. Yeah, I mean that, that's, that's that's incredible of her to say that even, but it was a there was no doubt it was a big turnaround for her. Uh, as as a as a song, I think it. it she found it difficult to to take on at first. I mean, she really didn't mm. see the potential. It was Roger Davis, her manager, that saw it. He was insistent, this is the one for yeah. you. Uh, and thank God he did. Uh, but I know Terry in the studio, with him, I mean, because Terry produced it. They asked me to co-produce, mm. but I said no. He, he he was the one that had the yeah. the view on how it should be. So... But he said at first, uh, Tina would approach it like, <clears throat> you know, <laughs> I've got to do, you know, it's far too Punchy, attacking right? as she did. That was her yeah, style. Yeah. So she had to sit back and get into the sure. groove, you know, and dance a little bit to it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I had. That's what made it work. When uh, you said that when you wrote it, it just popped into your head and you wrote it in a bit of scrap paper well I think you were on your way to Terry's place that's right I mean how where does that come from like where does something so 
so iconic. How does that just pop into your head, or does it just? <laughs> it, it, it does. It just it either comes or it doesn't. I don't think you can force it. But um, no, that was it. it. Just that phrase. I I think I was listening to something in the radio going over to Terry's, and for some reason that phrase came into my head, uh, and I thought I was, I was a bit a bit strange, but. I wrote it down, pulled up, wrote it down because I'm used to doing that. If you get an idea, you know, I'll yeah. stick a bit of paper in me. And uh, <laughs> my secretary <laughs> used to say, uh, "You've I found three different ideas in your jacket the other day." You know? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, and and the song came out of nowhere at the very end of the day. I don't know. I've said this before, but. Uh, Terry and I were, it was the first time we got together. We were getting nowhere, absolutely nowhere. It was embarrassing, you know, it was getting to that point where I think I'll pipe my guitar and I'll see you later, man, you know, that sort of thing. And then we started talking about Bob Marley and that's what the connection was. Then then we got a groove going and Terry started a lyric, uh, a melody. Uh, I did a little bit here and there. But it was there, it was there. And and then I remembered the, the little slip of paper, brought it out and, and messed around with it a little bit and it fitted. So we left it at that. I went home that night. I was buzzing with it, you know. And the lyric came, wow. Could have taken 10 minutes? The lyric just came, you know. Um, and that is rare too. <laughs> yeah, see that, see that buzz you're mentioning there. Does that just feel like a fire lit within you, as if you're kind of dormant? But then, do you have this excitement of I know how big this could be, or I just know this could be well, something it, I'm proud it's, of? It, it's not. It's not how big it could be. It's just it has. It, there's a. The, the, yeah, there is a spark there. There's something that ignites it, you know, and turns it from just notes and chords and rhythm. For me. That's the best songs I've got this. Mm. It's the chemistry of the, all these things together that mm. sometimes cause an explosion for me. Yeah. And once I once I get it once, I can't let that go. I've got it. Cause, and also, you know, sometimes you'll play the same idea having had that flash. Uh, you'll play it again and it doesn't have it. And why, you know, and you feel you've lost it, you've lost it. Oh, no, you know. Um, but once it, once you get it, then it's worth pursuing and, and continuing. Um, I, I'd usually, I would have a little tape recorder and if I got the just that flash, I would I would catch it on tape recorder. As bad as it was, we, we'd buy these cheap little things which didn't enhance the sound at all. So you just sing and play into it. When you play it back, you can tell a lot easier if it's got any substance or anything worthwhile in it. Mm -hmm. You know, because it, you're not you're not influenced by the quality. It's rubbish quality. <laughs> so if there's anything worthwhile, it will it will capture it. These these teeny little rubbishy tape recorders. I know I know that when you create something, you want people to enjoy it and you're proud of it and that kind of thing. But I get the feeling or the impression that 
just the creation and you hearing it and knowing that you've done it would be enough. Is uh, that true? You, I, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. That's kind of, I mean, you know, I'm, I can't, I can never go over the fact that, you know, you start a day and then at the end of it, you've created something that has never been created before. It's never existed. Yeah. I, Do you know? Uh -huh. And, it, and, it, and, and if it has value, wow, you just, it's exhilarating. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, this, doing this, you know, interviewing people and having conversations, it's uh -huh. nowhere near as impressive or as creative or, or is never going to have as resounding an impact as music. But I also get the same feeling. So for me, 99.9% .9 of the satisfaction and enjoyment comes from having a conversation. Uh -huh. Maybe a wee bit of stopping somebody in their tracks because they're like, how the fuck do you know I said that 19 <laughs> years ago? Like that's where I kind of get my wee buzz. And uh -huh. if it was never released, that's fine. If people enjoy it, that's yeah, great. But yeah. it, it, that's not where I can, it's not where I get my thrills from. I think the moment that you do it for, you do anything for adulation or a pat in the back, you're in a bit of hide, hiding to nothing because it'll, it'll never be enough. I agree, I agree. It's never ever going to be enough for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, I mean we can't, we're still not even finished talking about What's Love because now Kygo <laughs> has covered it. Yeah. Which was a song that you wrote in 1980 or 1981 and 2020 is now, I mean, it's flying up the charts. No, we wrote, we wrote it in 1984. Four. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what, 36 years? years ago. And it's and it's now, I mean, I heard it in Croatia, heard it in Amsterdam, heard it in the Caribbean. Really? Yeah, hearing it everywhere. I mean, oh, hearing good. it in bars. Well, I, I, was, I was told yesterday it was number three. Number three. It'll just keep climbing as well. I mean, there you go. Right. Tell you what, we'll let, since I'm nice and since we can do this now, I'll let you hear just a wee bit of Kygo covering What's Love. Um, so I mean it's that'll be being played all over the world because Kygo's massive as well yeah I mean I had never I to be honest I'd never heard of him yeah. uh, I'd I'd heard Higher Love by Winnie Houston but yeah. I didn't realise it was he was he was behind it um, but I I I think he's he's played he's paid real due respect to the song I I, I really like what he's done with it He's not like tarnished it or changed it. It's, no, it's just, you know, it's, it's and we've had a lot. Slightly. We've had a lot of um, rap hip, rap covers of of What's Love in the past. Um, Who was it that ripped it off? Was it Ja Rule and Ashanti, or was it somebody else? Yeah, Ashanti uh, and uh, uh, was it Warren G? Right, Warren okay. G had a number one with it. Oh, really? But all they did was take the chorus and then rap over the rest yeah. of it as far as I remember mm -hmm. and you know that I I, I've, I can't connect with rap I've got to be honest mm -hmm. I, I, you know it's my age I'm sure or whatever but um, I just don't get it I don't get it but I, having listened to a lot of these because we've had about well we must have had six or seven different rap versions using 
using a little of what's love got you know um and i've got to realize yes they do contribute they contribute it's not just a rip off you know yeah, yeah. they're not just using uh the recognition factor of of what's love got to do with it to sell their record you know they they they, they actually have added something and and, and in that case I'm quite happy to give them a bit of the money mm-hmm. of the, the royalties. Was there, am I getting that wrong? I thought there was somebody that used it without permission. Maybe they used a lyric and um, I thought you, my understanding was it basically you then kicked their ass for it. Uh, I think Warren G uh, put it out without asking permission. Right. And um, as a result, we we said, well, you know, we want 100%. Yeah. Fair enough, and and that's what happened of the publishing. What, yeah. What's the deal with that? Did do people just get in touch with your publisher and just say, "May we have permission?" Yeah, they, they usually get in touch with the publisher, and they'll maybe play a bit of the song. They, you know, they'll send us what they've done and how they're going to use it. Yeah. Um. So we can say yes or no, but the thing is, once our song has been recorded, once, um. Anybody can re can re-record that song. Mm-hmm. I I can only stop them if they are changing things so radically that it alters the whole right okay meaning or mm-hmm. you know, um, or if they're saying things that we don't really agree with, yeah. you know, like a lot of swearing or whatever, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. so. I mean, there was not only that, because winning the Ivor Novello Award for We Don't Need Another Hero, mm-hmm. I mean, you must have been getting some Christmas presents off of Tina Turner after that. <laughs> you've you've totally turned her life back. And then, was it after that then that you wrote Just Good Friends for Michael Jackson? One of only two songs that he didn't write for his 1987 album, Bad. I know, I know. That's some accolade as well. Yeah, that Did was... Did you ever meet him? That was amazing. No, we didn't. No, we didn't. The we fact that Stevie Wonder also performed in that. <laughs> no, we did. It was Rod Temperton uh, who had done all, a lot of Michael Jackson stuff, you know, off the wall, you know, and, um, and Thriller and, you know, and he, he's a good mate of ours. Unfortunately, he died recently. But uh, he he phoned up and said, Michael's doing a, an album, he's nearly finished, and he's thrown out all all Rod's songs. <laughs> he's he's written the whole thing himself, but he's short of one track. And uh, if there's anything you've got, send it in right away. Well, we didn't have anything, but we wrote Just Good Friends in haste. I made the demo, sent it out, and... Uh, as it happened, the lyric somehow reflected two people singing it about one female, mm-hmm. two guys singing it about one female. And we didn't realize he was going to do it as a duet with Stevie Wonder. We had no idea. <laughs> it was just pure luck. See, all these, <laughs> you know, that's where luck comes in. And, uh, but for them to do it was wonderful. Although, to this day, our demo was better. Really? I'm telling you, it was. The demo that Terry and I did was better than the finished record. I was both Terry and I were disappointed. I've got to say, that sounds, you know, bad. No, I think but, if you, but you know, 
quite often a demo is better than the finished record. Yeah. Quite often, in my experience, mm -hmm. because there's something about the way you do it where it's fresh and you just catch something quite wonderful sometimes, which is almost impossible to replicate when they go into the studio and try and do what you've done, mm -hmm. you know. What what then comes up? I mean, you you're established by that point. You've got you know multiple major awards: Michael Jackson, Tina Turner, Stevie mm. Wonder. Even oh, I I never knew you wrote a song for Ronnie Millsap. Oh yeah, what was that now? <laughs> uh, I can't remember the name, but I love Ronnie Millsap. I absolutely love him. Do uh, people then just start flocking to you and saying, "Please deliver me a hit"? Oh yeah, you know if you if you if you're successful, I mean. Like after the, the Grammys, literally the phone didn't stop ringing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just everybody wants you to do something for them. And uh, yeah, it's, the more success you get, the more chance of getting to artists, you know, established artists. No, no, no mm -hmm. doubt, no doubt. That helps a lot. But um, but we never really, you know, we we. we well, Terry and I, we didn't write like, oh, this is going to be a number one, I can see that. Yeah. We just sat down and, you know, did our best and hope for the best and that's it. I've I've got a theory as well, and I'd like to ask you about this, about fame and fortune. It's It goes without saying, you know, you have that level of success, you're going to accrue a, a great deal of financial wealth uh, and recognition, even if, if just in the industry, if the average man in the street doesn't know who you are. Mm -hmm. And I've got a theory that when you reach that level of, of fame and, and, and respect and whatever, it all depends on what age you are when you get it. And to a degree, if you if you attain that young, I feel like you're never really going to mm -hmm. develop to your fullest potential as a person because, you know, pressure's taken away from you. You can kind of have what you want. You're surrounded by yes men. You know, if you get that, are you happier that you got that at the age that you did? Yeah, a, I, in retrospect, I think you're right. I think you know, you're you, right. You get, yeah. I think you get that at 22, and yeah. I don't even blame people, but it's like you're just going to be a wee dick for the rest <laughs> of your life. <laughs> and that, just to put it blunt. It's, it's very, yeah, it's very hard to follow when you get it too young. Yeah, I, I think it was. I think, you know, our, our attitude like with Benny and I, because of the Apple experience, it, it was a case of sitting down and writing every day. You know, mm -hmm. it was like going to an office job. Yeah. It was almost behind a desk. Well, it was behind a desk with a guitar <laughs> between us, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think that attitude stuck with me. You know, I, I treated it like this is this is what I do and this is what I would want to do for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. It wasn't instant success and that's it no it was a gradual process you know and uh no i'm glad it, i'm glad it went the way it did and and now i'm still writing you know and i'm 76 i'm i'm still i'm not doing it to the extent that i did it i'm not because i was quite ferocious about it yeah. <laughs> at one stage but um now i can just enjoy it when it comes along the ideas come along you know what's what's funny for me I mean all these songs and all these artists songs that I listen to and every time I hear you've written one I'm like no way but even like um, 
if I never see you again by I did mention it here before and I think you seemed quite surprised but that's, so that's one of my favourite songs and it's then uh-huh. so weird for yeah. for me to yeah. you know to know that you something oh, that's, that I, that's funny I, we, I met in France I met this girl down down in Ongtib who she was working in a, a, a restaurant and she was from Saudi Arabia right and she was she had written her thesis she was only there in long part time but she had written her thesis on on that song really? if I never see you again she said it's my favourite song of all time <laughs> now, I mean and she you know song. it was amazing the power of a, of a song I mean personally I don't think that's a great song I think in any is. way but but it, it had something yep and the boys did it well, yeah. But I mean, for it to to be able to touch people from all over the world—that's an amazing, I don't, amazing. I don't ability. think there's anything, even sport. I don't think there's anything like music to be able to do that to people. The fact that you can hear something, it can take you back to a time in your life, or it can, yeah, like sort of, I don't know, paralyze your senses, where you just can't, you can't even pick up what's happening around you because you're just so focused. And, yeah almost like looking inwards to this song yeah I, know. Um, I mean another example of that I suppose you were honoured at the BMI Awards mm-hmm. uh, in London for 7 million performances of What's Love for them that's not aware BMI's short for Broadcast Music Inc and it's one of the four major uh, US performing rights organisations yeah so I mean honoured that night was Avicii posthumously he's obviously passed away mm. Noel Gallagher of Oasis Niall Horan of One Direction Ed Sheeran Sting Sam Smith. And funnily enough, Kygo was honoured that night as well. I don't know if you're aware of that. Kygo received oh, So it. he was there that uh, night? Yeah, he oh. got an award. Oh. I don't know if he'd been in touch with you at that point because it was only about... No. No, no nine, ten no, months no. ago. Funny oh, that. that's amazing. I wish, yeah. I'd, I wish I'd got in touch with him. If I ever get to... Or if you speak to him or if I speak to him first, I would imagine you'd speak to him first. Ask him if if that's where he got the idea. Because if... You never know. He could have just went, I've got, I want to cover that. And then... <laughs> <laughs> just done seven million. Could have grown. He's probably a good bet. <laughs> no, I think he. I I got the impression that he he genuinely respected the song. He 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 said it was had been a favourite of his. You know. So uh, anyway, so yeah, I'd love to meet the boy. Right. Well, let's try. You should try and sort that out. I'm sure it would be very very easy for you to. Mm-hmm. to oh to yeah, make that yeah. It should send be, him an yeah. email. Yeah, get him round. I'll do that. Round to the I'll house. do that. It's a great idea. Let let me know so I can come. I'm a big fan. Um, it's constant adulation and recognition because you had the, not many people can say they've had a musical written about their life. Uh, yours was by Largs Players at the Barfields Pavilion Theatre, April 2018, and it sold out. Uh, and it was set in Largs in New York. Story set around your songs. Um. I mean, how stuff. how yeah. does that feel when when first of all to see your life acted out and your your creations uh, and you're invited? That must just be surreal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. I find it quite difficult. Um, you know, um, like, you Maggie that- Kinloch produced the whole thing. Who who was? Uh, she's not related, but uh, she's a sister of. Stuart Grant, who used to manage us, right? Okay, yeah. Um, and she she had always 
she had grown up with Galan Lyle music, you know, mm -hmm. and it was her idea to put it all together as a musical. Uh, and she was a, a director of drama up in Glasgow, and uh, she she tried it out with her students at first and we went along to the rehearsal and they, they were terrific i couldn't believe it they're singing i mean we we wrote we wrote one song for for it one specific that would fit and um and then they used the largs players down here mm -hmm. to do it uh, right and and along at the barfields uh, or i call it the barfields uh, um yeah, it was it was lovely. It was really lovely of them, and uh, they were a great team. And, and there's a lot of amateur, you know. Yeah. Uh, but it but it was it was it was heartfelt, you know. What I'm interested in is is you find it difficult to receive real praise or adulation. You can have a bit self deprecating about it at times because there you're saying oh, it was only amateur. Well, but it was still people who took time out. To yeah, exactly. I know. I know. I don't want to put. Them, I don't want to minimise it. Yeah, no, you're right, but it is a Scottish trait, isn't it? You Aye. know, you, you don't want to get too above yourself. Fucking <laughs> 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 <Okay>, hell. <laughs> Gra Grammy Awards, Ivor Novello. <laughs> Play about your life, you still don't want to get above uh, yourself. Yeah. I, I respect it. I just, I find it funny. Why Why do you think that is? I mean, do you have your, your thoughts on that? Why are, why are Scots like that? I call it the slagging culture, where you'll be slagged if you do and you'll be slagged if you don't. If you mm -hmm. don't do anything, people will be like, what have you ever done? Then you do something, it's like, who do you think you are? Oh, yeah, that's you definitely. Win. You kind of have to just do it anyway, because yeah. no matter what you do, you're getting criticised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, there, there is that, yeah. I don't know. I think it's quite healthy myself. Yeah, I think so. You know, well, I think it's degree, quite healthy. To a degree. I suppose it, sometimes it goes a bit far. Yeah. I remember coming back from being in London after... Being on top of the pops with McGuinness Flint and, and the, when I'm dead and gone we were, and we'd been on top of the pops and, the, and I come back up to Largs for the first time after that and this lady come up and said did, did you have that song out when I'm dead and gone and I said yeah yeah you know she said that's a terrible song <laughs> what a thing to write about when I'm dead and gone <laughs> <laughs> One of my favourite stories along those lines is um, David Bowie said that, you know, in the wake of his success, as you would imagine, that he really believed his own hype. And he was just a bit of a, he said he was a bit of an arsehole and a bit of a brat, his words. He said he's filming the video for Ashes to Ashes, where he's famously dressed in a clown suit with the face paint on. It's like this all-in-one clown suit. And he said they're filming in public and an old guy just walked through the shot and he's, he's walking his dog. So he's thought, oh, for fuck's sake. So he sat down and uh, the director's come over because the guy's not moving. The director comes over and he says, excuse me, mate, but you're in the shot. And the guy's like, so? You know, it's a park. <laughs> and the director says, points at Bowie and he says, like, gestures towards him and he says, do you know who this is? And the old guy goes, yeah. He says, who is it? And the guy says, some cunt in a clown suit. <laughs> and Bowie, <laughs> Bowie says... <laughs> <laughs> Boy says he cut him right down to size and then I loved it and his final line about it is he says no matter how big I got I remembered I'm just some cunt in a clown suit <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was amazing it's that, it's that you know you can, how, can you, how can you ever get too too far above your station <laughs> it reminds me of, I remember being in America and uh, I, I was in this 
a railway station or was it an airport? I can't remember. But um, they was wanted to do a, a live interview with me, you know, and I was uh, on the phone and um, I'm doing this interview. It was live. It was going out on radio. And uh, <laughs> this guy came along cleaning up, you know, and I said, and he was whistling or singing. I can't remember, you know. Whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> and I said, hey, "Excuse me, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to do this interview on it's on the radio. I'm trying, you know." And he says, "I've got a job to do." <laughs> and just kept brushing. <laughs> Don't give a shit about your interview. Uh, I wanted to ask just as we kind of round up, um, musical heroes are yours. You're mm. right, and it's like soul Motown type of music. Musical heroes, yeah. Um, Aaron Neville, well, TB1. Oh, yeah. Aaron Neville, yeah. I went to Nashville um, one of these times I was in Nashville and I was out with uh, the publisher and Aaron Neville had been invited to oh, on, on the table. I mean, he was one of my absolute heroes and and I couldn't believe it. And... We've talked about maybe writing together. I don't know if Aaron Neville writes or not. I'm not sure. I'm still not, not sure. sure but the chances, I was given the chance of writing for him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, um, he, he was quite difficult. He was quite a distant sort of chap. But we got talking and he mentioned a song. He said, do you, do you know this song? And I said, no, I don't think I'd, I'd recognize it. And he says, well, I'll sing it to you. And he started singing at the table in this <laughs> restaurant. And people were looking around and saying, that's Aaron Neville. <laughs> and he's singing to this guy. <laughs> Did you feel like JFK when Marilyn Monroe sang Happy Birthday to him? Yeah, I, that, that, that was a bit like that. incredible. Uh, great. Yeah. Yeah, heroes. Uh, well, you know, obviously the old, the, the starting the rock and roll stuff. But um, you know, Buddy Holly and Chuck Berry and all all these guys, yeah, they got me going, mm-hmm. you know. And then uh, I think I went on to Dylan, where he and he I, he stopped me in my tracks, you know. When I heard Dylan's first album, it stopped me writing altogether. I just thought there's no way I can compete <laughs> with someone like this. He's just far too good. Yeah way, way better than I could ever do. And uh, so, no, but he, obviously he was a big, big influence. And then, uh, well, Simon Garfunkel to a certain extent, you know, I, I admired their ability to make a song as big as they made it, you know, with the production they did and everything. That was, that was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And then I went on to Bob Marley. No, the band. The band, I really thought the band were the best American group around, uh, and their 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 style of music was unusual and authentic. It seemed to me, um, and then the flag was taken up by by Bob Marley, and I mm-hmm. thought his he and and his band were just the best thing ever. And then after that, I went on to Antonio, Antonio Carlos Yobim, you know, Tom Yobim, the guy that wrote uh, Girl from Ipanema and right, okay. loads and loads of Brazilian uh-huh. big, big songs. 
and I, I started to play and learn that style of music on guitar. Didn't go too far down that line, but, but um, um, so so that was it really. Obviously, Tamlin. I mean, that picture up there—that's Lamont Dozier of Holland Dozier in Holland, mm -hmm. who wrote so many big hits in Tamla, and I was honoured to uh, give him his award that night. That was at one of these awards. I can't remember. Who's who's so, been the person that you've met that stopped you most in your tracks? I know that's a tough question because there'll be a lot of people in there, but. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think Ronnie Lane, I have to say, Ronnie Lane... You were in a band with him? What was the band yeah, called? Yeah, it was called Slim Chance. He, um, we had been asked to do a session by Glenn Johns, the producer, for Ronnie. Ronnie had left the faces. He'd split from Rod Stewart and everything, you know, mm -hmm. and he was on his own. And he wanted to do an album. And Glenn Johns phoned us up. And Benny and I were brought in for the session. I was playing mandolin. Benny was playing accordion, and uh, he uh, and we had met Ronnie before years past, but then I got to know him in the studio and everything, you know. And he's such a he's not here anymore, but he's such a talent, a real and and determined to stick. There's an honesty about the music, his music, you know. Yeah. And we recorded How Come, which was the single off the album. And I was playing mandolin, Ben was playing accordion, and and it and it it was a hit. So uh, Ronnie said, "Come on tour with us," you know. And Ronnie was his idea of going on tour was to get caravans and. And like treat it like a traveling circus, which it was. <laughs> right. It was like a traveling circus. <laughs> and he just his idea idealistically, he just wanted to turn up, go to some town and turn up in the outskirts, set up a big marquee and sell tickets and that would be it, you know. Uh and we'd be the band and maybe Eric Clapton wanted to join. You know, it was it was one of these situations. And uh uh it failed miserably. <laughs> <laughs> at least he tried. Oh, oh at least he tried. Aye. But Ronnie on stage, I mean, I loved his music. Ronnie on stage was was electric. He just was, whoa. Mm -hmm. You know, he'd do his funny little dance and, and singing that way he does. And audiences just loved him. They'd, they'd let him away with murder, you know, because he was a bit of a drinker, and, you know, and sometimes he'd, be all over the place but people just loved them I mean there's there's that there's that travelling circus type tour which is one extreme but then quite recently I, mean, I have to pick up on this you were asked to write a song for a United Nations project to try to empower women under oppression oh yeah around the world so you performed that at the the UNHQ in New York City that's and, right and the audience was Ban Ki-moon as you'd expect he's the general yeah. secretary of the UN yeah um even Ted Turner, people, something like Gina Davis. Yeah. Um, I mean, how does that come about? That mm. that is some honour to mm -hmm. be asked to, to yeah, do that. Yeah, it was. It was. Well, it, it 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 was through a friend of mine who I'd met down in in uh, in, in Antibes, and uh, she was American, 
and she what she knew the people in the UN. The UN had asked her if I would consider writing a song for them, mm-hmm. and um, we put it together. I put it together with this this lady. I'm trying to remember her name now. I oh, haven't got I, it. I, I got don't it. know her name. It is Beth Black. Beth. That's right. How'd you get that? Uh, I just mate, I, I told you. <laughs> no stone unturned. I even know that Roman Abramovich is your neighbour down in on Teep as well. But Roman Abramovich. Chelsea. Oh, Abramovich. Yeah, aye, Chelsea on him. Uh, yeah. The guy who had Christina Aguilera singing in his garden. <laughs> and Pat thought it was a CD that was played. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you get all this? I told you. I do my, my research. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. The, the, so. You know, we put the song together. I, I did most of the, me- well, I did the whole melody. It was a Somalian, Somalian lead singer, Fahan Hassan. She- Fahan Hassan. She she goes under the name Clay on right. her own, you know, and she does her own music, mm-hmm. which is marvellous, absolutely wonderful stuff. And um, she she's Somalian, a lovely girl, and uh, we've worked together on a few songs, Although she's much better on her own, definitely. <laughs> the songs she writes on her own and miles better. But um uh yeah, she did the demo for us, you know, she she sung the demo and I I, I love the way she sings. And the UN people said, Oh, well, who are we gonna to get to sing the you know, when we finally perform it? Mm-hmm. Um and uh we recorded it in London with Fahan singing and they wanted to get some big name on it, you know, and they weren't coming up with what I thought would be any good. Um, and I said, well, you know, Fahan did the demo and you like the demo, mm-hmm. so why don't we use Fahan? I mean, surely the UN and their infinite wisdom should have said Somalia as a country doesn't have the greatest track records mm. for women's rights why not have a Somalian woman yeah, that, yeah, right, yeah. that's good that I don't know if that came into the thinking but yeah. they agreed mm-hmm. they agreed to do it and Fahan was like oh, what New York should never been yeah, <laughs> right. Britain and, wow. um, uh, and that was great and it was it was it was a joy to do it. It really was. Fan was a bit nervous at first, as you can expect, but she brought her mum up. Brought her, her mum came with her, and uh, uh, and it, it went down very well. It went doing very well. I loved it because it was funny. Um, I noticed instead of a songwriter, they they introduced me as a composer. Suddenly, because I'm playing, a, yeah, I've got a suit on and I'm playing a Spanish guitar. You know, <laughs> somehow that's more more fitting. Composer Graham Lyle, which I had to laugh at. <laughs> <laughs> I deserved accolade. <laughs> well, I mean, from from the lights of the Largs Promenade to the bright lights of London, New York City, and Hollywood, it's been yeah. a hell of a story. I mean, <laughs> first of all, what has been what has been the most important thing? I suspect I know the answer. But what's been the most important thing for you just throughout your your whole life or the thing that you valued most? Oh, no question. My wife, Pat, there's yeah. no question about that. And I'm just, I am amazed she's still with me. I really am. I you're, really you're am good amazed. Team. I mean, we've been married 53 years now. <laughs> <laughs> you never know, she may get ready in 55. Well, I, listen, that's very possible. 
I, d- I highly she doubt it. She keeps threatening. <laughs> <laughs> That's just to keep you in your toes, I'm sure. Uh, I mean, if you could sum it up, I mean, did you see it? Did you see life going the way it did when you first set off for London? If you could sum it up in a sentence, I know that's a very tough thing. But in a sentence. I hope, I hope I carried on a little bit of the flame that these guys put in me, you know, these these old rockers. <laughs> I hope I carried some some something uplifting. That's that's really what you know, it's easy to write a sad song, a down song. Uh, it's it's not easy to write a good song, but it's easier to write a down song than to have a song that's got some value in it, some uplifting experience when you hear it. And uh, and I just hope to hell that I've I've done that more times than I've done the rubbish because I've done rubbish as well. <laughs> We all have, but I'd say your <laughs> achievements far outweigh the rubbish. Graham, this has been such a pleasure. Thanks for sharing all this with me. Thank you. Blethered was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine. And for more information, go to thebiglight.com. From the Big Light Studio.